be with you. O Lord, mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you, and grant that we may know and understand what things we ought to do, and also may have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated as we now read from God's Word. Lesson is a reading from Exodus, chapter 32, verse 7 through 20, page 72 in the Pew Bible. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, the tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, 
but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the psalm. The following psalm will be read responsively in whole verses. Psalm 39, verse 4 through 13, page 468. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not hold your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. The Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's together pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. And I pray now for your help as I preach. And I pray that you would stir in each one of us a desire to pray and to pray specifically. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
We today yearn for prayer, and we hide from it. We're attracted to it, and we're repelled by it. We believe prayer is something we should do, even something we want to do, but it seems like a chasm stands between us and actually praying. We experience the agony of prayerlessness. With those words, Richard Foster begins his book on prayer, the very first chapter, first paragraph. He describes the prayerlessness of the people of God. Last week when I preached to you on prayer, I asked the question, do you pray well? And in a very un-Anglican way, people actually gave me feedback. They went, I do encourage, by the way, participation in church, and people actually acknowledged, I don't feel like I pray well. I struggle with prayerlessness in my life, and, and I got that feedback from all three services, even the early service. When asked that question, do you pray well, people did not feel like they prayed well. And so it confirms what Richard Foster says in that quote from his book on prayer, that we experience that huge chasm between us and a prayer life. And we experience this, this agony of prayerlessness. There are a number of reasons why people struggle in prayer. One is that many doubt its effectiveness. Ask yourself right now, do you think that prayer is effective? Does it accomplish anything? What does it do? Ask yourself. Can your prayers change the outcome of circumstances? Think about that. Some people doubt God's activity. They're functional deists. That means they believe God exists and he created everything, but then he stepped back and he is no longer involved in the day-to-day workings of the world and the lives of people. So they think, well, God just doesn't respond. He's inactive. One of the things that I try to do in our church is keep coming back to the proclamation of Easter, that Christ is risen, which is what we declare on Easter morning. He is risen. He is also ruling, although secretly, silently, sometimes, it seems to us, but he is at the right hand of the Father on a throne, ruling as the king of everything. And in so doing, he still does stuff. He is working in our lives, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And let's try to get past that reluctance to pray. If we can understand that Jesus is moving and working and wants us to pray, we'll we'll be more likely to engage in it. I really like the name of a church planting movement, you've probably heard of them, called Acts 29. It's an affiliation of people who are starting new churches, and they've chosen that name for their organization because the book of Acts only has 28 chapters. It's a good name because they are actually writing the 29th chapter, as are we. If you read the book of Acts, you get to the 28th chapter, and it ends in this very weird way. It says, and Paul was in his house under house arrest for two years, and people came to him. Doesn't talk about his execution that we know happened. It doesn't talk about anything else because the book is still being written, and you and I are a part of it, that history is not done, that God is still doing stuff, and prayer has an important part in that. One of the reasons people struggle with prayer is the very attribute of God himself as sovereign. God's sovereignty is a problem for many of us. To think of the fact that he is in control of everything can make some of us think, well, then why should I pray? Have you ever done that? You thought, you already know what I'm going to ask God. You already know what I want, so why should I even ask? And, And we can shoot ourselves in the foot because of his sovereignty. Now, the other, on the other hand, though, when we look at 
the rest of the scriptures, judgment will be based on our actual behavior. We'll be judged for our actions, our words, our thoughts. And so clearly, God's sovereignty does not compromise human freedom and responsibility. Now, what I'm talking about here is one of the great mysteries of the scriptures. And if we're going to become effective in prayer, I think we've got to wrestle with this. You've probably heard this debate over God's sovereignty versus human responsibility. And it is a, not a paradox, it's a, an actual antinomy. I think it's helpful for Christians to learn that word, antinomy. It, it's a true contradiction, not an apparent contradiction. And the scriptures are clear, God is sovereign and he is in control of everything. As Jesus put it, not a single bird falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. And on the other hand, humans are free. They are free to decide what to do. I've threatened to push this pulpit over before. I have free will to do this. I can push it over. I can do many things beyond that. So can you. You are not a puppet on a string. You actually have freedom. And that that tension is something that the scriptures don't seek to resolve to most people's satisfaction. And I know there are two camps in Christian thinking down through the ages that probably both are ruffled with this topic as I bring it up. But the scriptures, if you read just one section, you can come away thinking, oh, God is totally in control and we have no freedom. You can read something else that says, it all depends on me. And both of these things have to be held in tension. And that affects how we pray. So I want you to be aware of this antinomy in Scripture, and I'm hoping that as you mature, as someone who matures in the study of Scriptures, when you come across certain texts of Scripture, a flag should go up in your head. It's like, boom, here's one of those places, here's one of those places where God is speaking of human responsibility and freedom, or he's speaking of sovereignty and his control over the events of history. And so we should start to look for these. Now, I wanted to define antinomy before I get into this passage because this is one of those red flag passages. In Exodus, we've got what is sometimes used as a proof text or a fighting text to to start a theological debate or argument as to whether or not God changes his mind. Or maybe even more specifically, does Moses change God's mind? So in this account, as many of you are familiar, the Israelites are waiting at the foot of the mountain and Moses has been up for a very long time with God. God is giving Moses the entire covenant and the 10 commandments on the tablets of stone. And then God says to Moses, go down now for your people, the pronouns in this narrative are significant, your people, Moses, it's like God is disowning them, your people have broken out against me and are sinning. And Moses goes down and he hears what's happening and they're worshiping the golden calf they've made. And Moses then goes to God and intercedes because God had told him that he's go- he, he actually says, move away from me, Moses, because my anger is burning hot and I'm going to consume them. And then Moses intercedes on their behalf as a mediator between God and man and says, don't do this. Don't do this thing. Remember what you promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And think about what the Egyptians will say. You led them out to destroy them in the wilderness. Remember these things. And it says, and God relented. The word is relented. And God relented of what he had planned to do. I don't think you can do a fair reading of the scriptures and think that God was just bluffing. It sets it up like God had, had he told Moses what he intended to do. He wasn't just bluffing to see if Moses would say something. Although it does seem to suggest that he left the door open. Why couldn't he just consume the people with Moses in his presence? 
move away from me, Moses, so that I can consume them, seems to open a door for Moses then to intercede. Now, I want to suggest that there are several things that Moses' intercession affects that, that happen, things that change. The first is God relents. He actually changes what he told Moses he intended to do. The second thing is God changes Moses through that prayer. Prayer changes us. Moses, remember, was reluctant. He did not want to be the people, people's leader. He said, send somebody else, God. I'm slow of speech. I'm not eloquent. What, what, they're not going to believe me. You, you know, he complained and complained until God got angry with him. He's now in a place where he has stepped up and is interceding for these people on their behalf before God. He has become their mediator, their representative. And that's a change in Moses. I bet Moses in some ways surprised himself when he started to do that. No, God, don't do this. Think how many times they frustrated Moses as they were grumbling and complaining as he led them into the, across the Red Sea and then in, over to the Mount Sinai. So Moses has now, he's grown in maturity as a leader and love for the people and is now praying for them and interceding for them. So prayer changed Moses. It also teaches people the need for Christ. People learn from this. This is a prototype of our need for a mediator, a holy God and a sinful people. That, that doesn't work. It's like opposite magnets. It repels, it, it pushes away, it causes conflict unless there's a man to stand in between. Moses does imperfectly what Christ later does perfectly. But the people learn that they need a mediator. And God does bring judgment on the people in Exodus for this sin. A plague breaks out. There are 3,000 people that are killed. Um, they get punished. And they realize what Moses' role is. But it is pointing us forward to the need for a perfect mediator, which is Christ. Who is Christ? Notice something about how he prays. He says things that he knows about God and then he asks what he wants. God, remember your words. You've promised a covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then relent from this. He prays what he knows about God and then what he asks. I like that model, and you see it as you look through the scriptures in a number of other places. For instance, think about King Solomon. When King Solomon is given the throne of his father David, and he's asleep one night, God comes to him in a vision and says, Ask what you will of me. What an interesting opportunity that is. It's as close as you're gonna to get to a genie in a bottle situation. You know, you rub the bottle, out comes a genie, three magic wishes. But this is God now, not a genie. And he says, ask what you will of me. And Solomon says, I'm a child. I'm basically a child and I'm in charge of Israel. And then he prays what he knows. He says, you've been very gracious to my father David. You've honored your word to him and you've placed one of his descendants on his throne. Now, would you give me wisdom to rule this people? And then God answers in one way that I think would have been different had Solomon prayed in a different way. He says, since you didn't ask me for wealth and fame and power over your enemies, but asked for wisdom, I'm gonna make you very wise and I'm gonna give you those other things. So we see, once again, a prayer that has a response from God that is very specific to the prayer. And we see the pattern of Solomon saying, this is who you are, this is what I know about you, this is what you've promised, and this is what I want. And he asks specifically. Or in the gospel reading from this morning, 
Two blind men on the road to Jericho, they hear that Jesus is passing by, so they start shouting out. They're blind, so they can't see. They hear the noise of the procession, so they turn in that direction, and they start crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. So much so that it irritates the people, and they say, be quiet. Be quiet. You're irritating us. Shut up. And Jesus goes over to them. And if they're asking for mercy, two blind men sitting on the side of the road asking for mercy, what do they want? Obviously, they want, and they know a healer is coming by who has already healed the blind. They're clearly asking for their sight, but Jesus doesn't go over and just give them in general mercy. He says, what do you want me to do for you? He invites them to ask specifically. He wants to hear the prayer. Lord, let us receive our sight. And then Jesus touches their eyes and heals them. Again, they pray what they know. He's the son of David. There's a big promise there to David from God as to what he was going to do. And here's the fulfillment of it coming. This is Jesus, the son of David, the perfect David, if you will. And they're saying, son of David, have mercy on us. And they know that he can heal. So they pray what they know about him, and then they ask specifically what they want. Let us receive our sight back. This is a really good model for prayer and for expectant prayer. And we see things happen because of the asks of people. Clearly God wants your and my specific requests. How and what we ask has an effect. As James the apostle writes, you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask incorrectly so that you can spend it on your passions. So there are some things that God would like to do and he's waiting for you to ask. And then he's also saying, and consider how you ask. It's not just about selfish gain, but there's a bigger picture here to God's will. Specific prayer, I think specific prayer bothers us. It doesn't bother God, but I think it bothers us because it's an affront to our unbelief. If I start asking God for something specific, then he either is gonna answer it yes or no, but what I'm afraid is gonna happen is nothing because I don't believe, right? Isn't that functionally what is happening? You know, if I just pray in general, Lord have mercy, have mercy, have mercy, and not have mercy in this way, in this situation. If I say, forgive me my trespasses, but I don't go to him and say, forgive my greed, forgive my lust, forgive my anger, specifically at this person, then I'm praying in general, and so the answer's in general. If I start praying specifically, I'm gonna have to watch for specific answers. I believe this is God, how, how God wants us to pray. Expecting an answer and specifically. A.W. Tozer writes about the sovereignty of God in his book uh, uh, on the attributes of God. And speaking of the sovereignty of God, he says something that's so helpful. He's talking about free will. The human, humans have free will because God has willed it in his sovereignty that we can, we can have free will. And he says a less than truly sovereign God would have a problem with that. But a really sovereign God has no problem with that because he is able to still accomplish what he intends even though we have freedom. Freedom to even disagree, contradict, or outright try to resist his will. And he gives a really, Tozer gives a really helpful metaphor. He says, imagine a huge cruise liner going from New York to England, and the itinerary is set. It's gonna depart New York and it's gonna arrive in England. But there's thousands of people on board. On board, they can do a number of things. They can do whatever they want on board within reason, and that, that is still gonna hit its port. It might even have to uh, direct its course around a storm. 
but overall, the course is set, and God has done that. He has declared many things to us that are His will, that we know how things are going to end. We know that those who are His will win in the end. We know that His will is going to be accomplished, and yet because He's sovereign, He's not threatened by giving us freedom to participate in that or to resist it. I really like that metaphor. We know the end. If we don't know the route, we still know the end. And things can happen on that cruise liner depending on what we do with it. Don't you want to be a person who goes to God specifically? Don't you have things you would like to see happen that are in keeping with His will, but we don't have because we don't ask? Now, I want to give you a very specific application to this sermon. This is not a general idea. This is very specific. And many of you, I know, already do this. But if you don't, I want to encourage it. I have a prayer journal. I'm not a journal writer like, dear diary, today I ate breakfast and then I went to work. And I, I don't, not like that. But to keep record of what I am asking God for. It forces me to think specifically. And I, I've got a list of, I, don't, I think there's 14 things on it right now. And I change it from time to time. But these are things that are so specific that I'm going to get a yes, no, or just wait answer. And I know that. And what it's doing is it, is increase, it always increases my faith. I'm looking. I'm looking for what God is going to do. I want to encourage you to follow the pattern of Moses, of Solomon, of the blind man on, Jer- on the road to Jericho, and pray what you know of God's will, and then ask specifically what you want. You want to be careful not to ask something that is definitely contrary to his will, because I can tell you what the answer is going to be already. You don't need to pray that one. Just ask me. I'll tell you. The answer is no. But there are many things that are left open that God gives you freedom to pursue. I want to encourage you to pursue those things. I know God's will is for reconciliation. So on my list, there happen to be two people right now that I'm praying for by name that they would have God's power to forgive someone in their life. I'm expecting to see God change their heart and work forgiveness. I'm praying in accordance with what I know about God, and I'm asking very specifically by name for these people. And there are a number of things like that. If you can't think of things to ask specifically, come to me. I have several prayer requests I will gladly give you for your prayer journal. But I want to encourage you. Maybe just try it for a month if you've never done this. Actually write down what you want. Learn to pray in accordance with what you know about God and watch what He does. He'll change you and He will change the circumstances of your life. I want to encourage us to be a people, a church that prays specifically and with expectation. And in closing, I want to pray a prayer that's over 100 years old, written by a man named Andrew Murray from his book called With Christ in the School of Prayer. Would you pray this with me? It's in the first person, but I'm making it all of our prayer. Lord Jesus, teach me to pray with all my heart and strength, and that there may be no doubt with you or with me as to what I've asked. May I so know what I desire that even as my petitions are recorded in heaven, I can record them on earth too and note each answer as it comes. And may my faith in what your word has promised be so clear that the Spirit may indeed work in me the liberty to will that it shall come. Lord, renew, strengthen, sanctify wholly my will for the work of effective prayer. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join in professing what you believe and I believe using the Nicene Creed.
We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Would you please kneel if you're able as we now pray. We offer our prayers together now, uniting our voices with Christ, who perfects our prayers. After each prayer request, I will pray, Lord, in your mercy, to which you respond. Hear our prayer. Lord, we pray for the worldwide church. Help us to support those from Grace Anglican who are fulfilling your great commission, making disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that you have commanded. And Lord, we give you great thanks for the protection of Liz Christensen and her team in Paris over this weekend. Lord, in your mercy, we pray for Archbishop Foley, for our pastors, Mike, Gus, Dan, and for all our leaders at Grace Anglican Church. Lord, in your mercy. For all who believe in you, Christ, that our divisions may cease and that all may be one as you and the Father are one. Lord, in your mercy. For this congregation, that we may be delivered from hardness of heart and glorify you in all that we say and do. Lord, in your mercy. For those who do not yet believe and for those who have lost their faith, that their hearts may be softened to your love. Lord, in your mercy. 
Lord, we pray for peace and justice in our world. Please comfort the injured and grieving in Paris. Unify and empower the governments of the world to fight against this great evil. Lord, take away the mistrust and lack of understanding among peoples of the earth and bring them under your sovereignty to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy. For all of those in our government, especially President Obama and Governor Scott, empower them to serve with truth and justice and courage and promote the dignity of every person. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, we pray for our community, for all who live and work in this community, especially all medical personnel. Give them compassion for each patient. Give them your divine discernment and wisdom so they can minister your gift of healing. Lord, in your mercy. We pray for the poor, the persecuted, the sick, and all who suffer, for refugees being resettled here in Jacksonville, for prisoners, and especially the Kairos weekend, um, this weekend in the Palatka prison, and for all who are in danger. Give them relief and protection. Lord, in your mercy. For our enemies and those who wish us harm, Bring them to a saving knowledge of you, Lord. And for all whom we have injured or offended, Lord, in your mercy. For those who are sick and those who take care of the sick, especially Michelle Palmer, Tom DiLoretto, Donna Hamilton, Carol Hart, Steve Schmidt, Jared Ellis, and for those who mourn, for Mimi Feitig and her family.